You're all very welcome. <clears throat> Just before we begin, a couple of things that I need to mention. First of all, I've been asked to pass on thanks from Betty Whiteman uh, for all the cards and the letters of sympathy that she has received. That's following the death of her sister-in-law, Pat Salt. Uh, Betty and Pat were not just related, they were very close friends, and Betty is really thankful for your uh, sympathy and thoughts toward her at this time as well. And then just a reminder that uh, if the weather holds up, we will plan to finish our time of worship by singing together uh, outside. We'll leave through these doors and pick up the song sheets, so I hope you have a coat with you this morning. I don't, and I'm regretting it, but we will um, plan to do that at the end, unless I get a clear signal that it's raining heavily or something. And then just to also mention that we are meeting again this evening at um, 6 p.m., and we will be finishing our time in Matthew's uh, gospel with a very uh, well-known and a very significant passage for us. So I hope that you can join us this evening as we look at the end of Matthew chapter 28. That's all that I need to uh, mention. By way of introduction, we have gathered together here to worship God, and our first song reminds us of the character of the God we are worshiping today. He is the good and gracious King. You're a good and gracious king. 
in need of nothing. Empty-handed I rejoice. You deserve the greater glory. And overcome with joy I sing. By your love I am accepted. You're a good and gracious King. You're a good and gracious King is worthy of all the honor we can give him. We're going to read a scripture passage now that tells us about a woman who gave him what she had to give. And this passage is also significant because in it Jesus quotes from the passage in Deuteronomy, which we're going to look at later. It's Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. And we're going to read verses 6 to 13. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's always a pleasure to be able to welcome new members into our church fellowship, and this morning we're going to welcome Gerald and Rita Tanner, so um, I'm going to ask Gerald and Rita to come and join me at the front at this point, and then um, what we're going to do is, as Gerald and Rita make their membership commitments, those of us, uh, in fact all of us will stand in a moment, and I'll invite you to join with Gerald and Rita if you're a church member and uh, recommit to these things which will be on the screen. So Gerald and Rita, um, we're very glad to have you as, I know you've been coming for a while, but to have you now as members of our fellowship. And if you haven't spoken to Gerald and Rita, please take the opportunity to um, do that. And um, we're going to pray for you, or Steve's going to pray for you in just a moment as you join with us. But I'd ask you all to stand now. And there will be four screens, three different areas of commitment, which if you're a church member, you should be very familiar with. But this is a great opportunity for all of us to recommit to these things. So if you'll say these with me, please. First of all, with regard to my relationship with God, as a new person in Christ, I seek to live a holy life as a child of God, being obedient to His Word. Then in terms of my relationship to fellow believers, as a member of the family of God, I recognize its spiritual unity and the necessity and value of the church meeting together regularly for worship, Bible study, the Lord's Supper, and prayer fellowship. The spiritual and material welfare of all members is my concern, encouraging me to love and to pray for each member. This is further expressed in the faithful exercise of my God-given gifts within the corporate life of the church, and by my willingness to submit to those in authority over me in the Lord. And then finally, with regard to my relationship to the world, I seek to bear a distinct witness to God in the world by word and quality of life, 
doing good to all and making known the gospel for the salvation of mankind. You may all be seated, and I'll ask Gerald and Rita if they'll stay at the front while Steve uh, leads us in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it's uh, such a joy uh, to be able to welcome new members uh, into the family of faith uh, here in Pelsall. Uh, recently, Lord, we've uh, grieved uh, the loss of members uh, for various reasons, and so it's wonderful that we can rejoice in people being added to our number here. Uh, and we thank you for Gerald and Rita in particular. We thank you for the way that you've used them uh, over many years in your service in the churches they've been part of. Uh, We uh, give thanks for the uh, gifts that they're able to use in the fellowship here in Pelsall, and we pray that they would be used uh, for the furtherance of the gospel and for the building up of the saints into maturity. But we also pray as well as uh, for them to be able to use their gifts here uh, for us to be a blessing to them as well. Uh, Help us to encourage them and strengthen them in their faith and help them to grow more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the way that you bring us together from different places and different backgrounds as one body as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just thank you again for each member that we have here. We thank you for the different gifts that you've given us, for the love that we share of the Lord Jesus Christ, which spills out into love for one another. And so help us as a body to shine the light of the gospel in our community in the way that we love you and in turn love one another. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our next song reminds us what it is that unites us as God's people. We're not united by the same personality or background or uh, language even, but we are united as we come together beneath the cross of Jesus. And as he accepts us, we find ourselves as part of a new family with brothers and sisters in Christ beneath the cross of Jesus. Cross of Jesus. 
this point, the Sunday school are going to be uh, moving next door to continue their time of worship. And if you notice Gerald and Rita uh, slipping out, they're not going to Sunday school, and neither have they uh, taken offense uh, anything that's gone on, I'm assuming. They were with us at the early service, so they're uh, having stayed for the first part, they're going to be uh, slipping out, I think. This morning we come to Deuteronomy chapter 15, and it's a chapter with a clear message. God calls His people to be a generous people. In recent weeks, we've heard about the kind of culture the Israelites are going to encounter when they cross the river into Canaan. It's a culture that will be full of all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. But as well as highlighting some of those detestable things the Israelites are to avoid, Moses also has a positive message in these chapters. He's concerned that the Israelites develop their own alternative culture, a culture full of all kinds of good things the Lord loves. We saw at the end of chapter 14 that every three years, a tenth or a tithe of the produce is to be stored to provide for those who have no land of their own. And now in chapter 15, God's people are called to quite a radical generosity. And while the outworking of that generosity is probably not going to be quite the same for us as it was for the Israelites, there are principles here that are useful and challenging for us today. So let's read Deuteronomy chapter 15. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner. But you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl 
and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because their service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand, and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn meal of your herds and flocks. Do not put the firstborn of your oxen to work, and do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year, you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place He will choose. If an animal has a defect, is lame or blind or has any serious flaw, you must not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You are to eat it in your own towns. Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, as if it were gazelle or deer. But you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. This is God's Word. And we could sum up the first 18 verses of our passage like this. Our generous Lord calls us to generosity. To be generous is to give liberally, lavishly. It means not giving just the bare minimum, but going over and above, giving bountifully. We said that generosity is a good thing the Lord loves. And the reason He loves to see His people being generous is because He is a generous God. In a moment, we'll think about what this passage means when it talks about canceling debts. But before that, we need to grasp the generosity that's being called for here is simply an imitation of God's generosity. Several times this passage reminds the Israelites that when they cross the Jordan River, they're going to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. Generations before this, God singled out a nomad called Abraham. And he promised to turn Abraham's descendants into a great nation and to give them a land of their own. And after Abraham's death, when his descendants were trapped in slavery, God delivered them. And now, finally, he has brought them to the edge of this inheritance he's going to give them, the land of Canaan. And whatever else we might say about that history of Israel, we have to say it's a history of incredible generosity on God's part. And for you and me today, if we have come to recognize Jesus as God's Son, if we've come to trust in Him as our Savior from sin, then we have benefited from divine generosity that more than matches what the ancient Israelites experienced. And our inheritance is not the land of Canaan, it's God's new heaven and earth, a place of eternal fruitfulness and prosperity. And so whatever generosity you and I might show to others, it's just a minor imitation of the generosity that God pours out on us. He loves to see His people being generous because He Himself is a deeply generous God. And this is something that applies to all the instruction in Deuteronomy. The instructions in this book give us a window into the heart of the God who gave us these instructions. We can trace back from the instructions and laws, and we can learn about the character of the God who gave them to us. And here, if we trace back from these instructions about generosity, we find they come from a God whose own heart overflows with generosity. And in verses 1 to 18, we're shown three aspects of the generosity God calls us to. It's generosity that is to be planned, it's to be from the heart, and it's to be constructive. So first of all, our generous Lord calls us to generosity that is planned. Look again at verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. What exactly are we talking about here? 
Well, it sounds very official. It sounds like something the government ought to be dealing with. But actually, this is not addressed to the government. This is for individual Israelites who've made a loan to another Israelite. Seven times in Hebrew, this chapter mentions your brother. Now, the NIV usually translates it as your fellow Israelite. We've seen before in Deuteronomy, this book envisages God's people as a brotherhood. This is about one Israelite loaning to their brother or sister Israelite. How might that come about? Well, we know that when the Israelites conquer Canaan, the land is going to be divided up among them. So each tribe will be given a large portion of land, and then the land given to each tribe will, will be divided between, first of all, the clans within that tribe, and then within those clans, each family will be given a plot of land. And each family will then support itself by farming that plot of land. But of course, there are things that can go wrong with that. For some reason, your crop might fail one year. Or you might have an accident, you might get injured, so that you're incapable of farming your land for a period of time. In cases like that, you might ask a neighbor to help you out, to give you a loan of some, time, of some kind to get you through your difficulty until you can sow and harvest a new crop or recover from your injury. So what we're talking about here is a different situation from the one at the end of chapter 14. There, the tithe of the produce was set aside for people who had no land. They had no means of earning, so they could never pay back a loan. They were simply supported through the tithe. But this situation is different. The person taking the loan should be able to pay it back because they do have land which they can farm. The Bible works on the principle that those who can work and support themselves do work and support themselves while also making provision for those who can't support themselves. But here, the focus actually is not on the person who's taking the loan. The focus is on the person giving it. So if I'm an Israelite, verse 1 tells me that loans are to operate on a fixed cycle of seven years. So if I give you a loan in year one of the seven-year cycle, then whatever is still owed on that loan after six years... In the seventh year, I cancel that remainder of the debt. Or, if your crop fails in year five of the cycle, for example, and I give you a loan, then whatever is still owed to me after just one year of repayments, I cancel that debt because it's the seventh year of the cycle. So can you see how this is planned generosity? I give you the loan knowing full well how little or how much I'm likely to get back. And what I get back cannot be more than the amount I loaned. Because I know that elsewhere in Deuteronomy, Israelites are instructed not to charge each other interest. The situation was different with foreigners who came into Israel to do business. And that seems to be the situation verse 3 is referring to. The seventh year cancellation of debts doesn't have to apply to business arrangements. But it's different if I give a loan to help a fellow Israelite in need. Never mind making money, I give the loan knowing I'm probably going to lose money. Because you may not be able to repay me the full amount before the year for canceling debts comes up. So this is a system of planned generosity. These loans are not handouts. The person who can work to pay it back is expected to do so. But the person giving the loan knows from the start they're helping their fellow Israelite. They are not seeking to exploit them for profit. And in fact, they're not even seeking to recoup what they gave out. They enter into the arrangement knowing the cost. 
And verses 4 and 5 say, if you follow this instruction, there need be no poor people among you. The person who has to take a loan will not be crippled by the loan. The cancelling of the debt in the seventh year will allow them to begin to have a surplus again. So they will soon be in a position to help others. So there need be no poor, but later, verse 11 is going to acknowledge that in fact, there will always be poor people in the land. This world being as broken as it is, there will always be a need for our generosity. And if we think about how this applies today, Clearly, our situation is different in that there is government provision for those in difficulty. But I think we know very well government provision doesn't cover everything. There are still times when people find themselves in need, not through laziness, but through genuine difficulties that have arisen. And often, those difficulties are not going to be solved in a matter of days or weeks. So our generous God still calls us to show planned generosity, not just to give as an emotional response of the moment, not just to make a one-time gesture that's unsustainable, but instead to plan what we're going to do, to count the cost and then see it through until the need is met. And we shouldn't just think about money here. There are many ways of being generous. Time is another way. Or using certain skills we might have to help someone. Giving our time and our skills requires planning too. We have to count the cost of helping with someone's care. Or fixing something for them. It's no good just offering to help and then not following through or helping once and then dropping off. In that regard, you and I are to be like the ancient Israelite who committed to help understanding the long-term cost of helping. And if you and I are going to be people like that, then our generosity has to be from the heart. Look at verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will towards the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them, and do so without a grudging heart. We saw earlier that the giver isn't going to profit from their giving. At least, they're not going to profit directly. They will be blessed by God, of course. This passage mentions that several times. But God's blessing isn't guaranteed to take the form of financial profit. So the scenario we're dealing with here, in this scenario, the giver will only be willing to give if they give with a sacrificial attitude. Within this system, the only way anyone's ever going to land is if their heart is in it. This isn't going to work if people are hard-hearted and tight-fisted. For this to work, it needs soft hearts and open hands. And if ever we needed evidence that Old Testament religion isn't about dead ritual, the book of Deuteronomy gives us that evidence. This is just another example of what we've seen plenty of times already. God has always cared about the heart. True biblical religion is a religion of the heart. The things God asks of us can only come from hearts that love Him and love others. We'll come back to that point later on. 
But first, notice what verses 12 to 18 add to the picture. Our generous Lord calls us to generosity that is constructive. Look at verse 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you for six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. We haven't moved on to a new situation here. We're still on the same subject. Verses 1 to 11 had in mind a situation where someone fell on hard times. You gave them a loan, and they could begin to pay you back through working their land. But what if for some reason they couldn't do that? They knew that when they took the loan that their land wasn't going to give them any kind of yield during the seven years. What were they to do then? Well, they could work for you as repayment of the loan. That's what verse 12 means when it says they sell themselves to you. This isn't forced on them. They enter into this voluntarily. They become like a hired servant, except you're not paying them a wage. They're repaying you through their work. And just as we saw earlier, that the loan repayments are to be canceled in the seventh year, so here, the man or woman is to go free in the seventh year, whether their work has covered the cost of the loan or not. But there's an obvious problem with just shaking hands and letting them go in the seventh year. The problem is, if they had no means of paying you back before, if their land was so unprofitable that their only option was to come and work for you, then very likely they're not going to be able to support themselves when they leave you. They'll be back on your doorstep within weeks asking for another loan and selling themselves to you for another seven years. In other words, they'll be caught in what's called a poverty trap, a situation of poverty that becomes a vicious cycle they can't break out of. So what are you to do in that situation? You show constructive generosity. When their seven years of working for you are over, you don't just wave bye-bye and congratulate yourself for having done your bit. No, when they leave, you give sacrificially to make sure they're set up to succeed. Look at verse 13. When you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. This isn't just a case of giving them a few weeks' food. This is a jump start to their economic stability. You give them what they need so they don't appear back on your doorstep in a few weeks' time. That's constructive generosity. And so is the alternative, which is set out in verses 16 and 17. Those verses make provision for the person who just isn't going to make a go of it on their own. Presumably because they have some kind of disability that prevents them working the land. In that situation, they can choose to stay with you permanently. Verse 16 says, if he or she loves you and your family and is well off with you, meaning if he's never going to do better than he does working in your household, then he can voluntarily go through this ceremony that's described where he gets his ear pierced, you get your door ruined, and it becomes a permanent arrangement. Again, when you take on someone who's obviously hampered in their ability to work, that is also constructive generosity. They might contribute much less than an able-bodied worker. But with a soft heart and an open hand, you commit to support them as they contribute what they can. So what we have here in this passage is a vision of generosity in a true brotherhood, where people who are in a position to help do so in ways that are thoughtful and resourceful. Generosity with money is part of the picture, 
but it goes well beyond financial handouts. This is generosity that considers the particular person and their particular circumstances, and then helps in ways that fit the person and their circumstances. And that's how this passage is helpful to you and me. In our world, where seven-year cycles don't exist, in our world where very few of us are likely to have flocks or threshing floors or wine presses, and probably none of us are going to pierce someone's ear so they become our voluntary servant for life. Those surface details don't match our situation. But the kind of generosity this passage is talking about is just as important as ever. It's just as needed as ever. And God calls us to willingly and thoughtfully enter into it. In this brotherhood, the church of Jesus Christ, there are men and women with all kinds of needs. Some of those needs are financial. Many are not financial. There are needs for care and company and support. There's need for help with household chores and repairs and paperwork especially online form filling? Will you make yourself available to show generosity in those ways? You can't meet everyone's need, but are you on the lookout for needs you might be able to meet? Are you serious about the membership commitments we said together earlier? that the spiritual and material welfare of all members is your concern. And when you do become aware of a need, will you count the cost of helping and plan to help? Maybe involve others in providing the help. And then will you follow through on what you commit to? And when someone has a tricky need, an unusual and challenging need, will you work with them and others to show constructive generosity, to help with their particular need, even if it's a hard one to help with? That's what God calls us to as His people. He's a generous God. And so he has always looked for his people to imitate his generosity. And if you and I are to do that, we need to be close to our generous God. We need to be nurturing our relationship with him. And that brings us to the final verses of our passage. Look down to verse 19. Set apart for the Lord your God every firstborn meal of your herds and flocks. Do not put the firstborn of your oxen to work, and do not shear the firstborn of your sheep. Each year, you and your family are to eat them in the presence of the Lord at the place He will choose. These verses might seem to jar with what we've seen in verses 1 to 18, because we can probably see the point of what those verses called us to. After all, that kind of generosity helps people. But this, well, this might seem wasteful. And so we need to ask, as we read about these costly sacrifices of worship, are they a wasteful generosity? Or are they a beautiful thing? Once again, God is calling His people here to give. He's calling them to give in ways that are costly. They're to sacrifice the firstborn of their herds and flocks. And you couldn't get any work out of them first and then sacrifice them. You couldn't plow with your firstborn oxen and you couldn't take the wool from your firstborn sheep. So it was a double sacrifice. 
Don't keep them and don't take any benefit from them before you give them up. And the purpose of these sacrifices is that God's people will nurture their relationship with him. They're to eat at least a portion of the sacrificial meat in his presence, in the place he will choose. This is actually part of a pattern. Back in chapter 12, we first heard about this place of worship God is going to choose. And as we go through these chapters, we keep bouncing back to it. Between details about other laws, it came up again after we heard about clean and unclean food in chapter 14. And now it comes up again after the instruction about cancelling debts. It's like one of those footballs on an elastic cord. You can boot it in any direction you want, but it always rebounds to the same place, wherever the cord is anchored. It's like that with the one place of worship in Deuteronomy. We're taken off to hear about all sorts of other things, but we keep coming back to this. Worship in the presence of the Lord. And that structure of the book is absolutely intentional. It's teaching us worship in the Lord's presence is essential to all of the other stuff. We will only get the other stuff right if we get this central thing right. In the case of the instruction about generosity in verses 1 to 18, we learned back in verses 7 to 11, true generosity comes from a soft heart. And you and I are only going to develop a genuinely soft heart in the presence of the Lord our God. As we give our best to Him with sacrifices of praise. As we learn to rest in His love and acceptance. As we enjoy the wonder of His salvation. And it's not only the structure of Deuteronomy that teaches us this. Jesus Himself taught it. We read earlier from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. In that passage, Jesus quotes from our passage here in Deuteronomy. The situation is that a woman does an extravagant thing for Jesus. She pours a very expensive jar of perfume over him. And Matthew tells us that provoked indignation from some of those who were watching. They consider it to be a waste. They think it would have been better to sell the perfume and give the money to the poor. But in response to their indignation, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. The poor you will always have with you. And Jesus adds, but you won't always have me. He said that because he was about to go to the cross. Where he would show divine generosity as he died to redeem a people from sin and death. And when Jesus praised this woman for anointing him, and then said, the poor you will always have with you, he was not saying, the poor don't matter. He was not saying, don't bother about helping them. Not at all. His point was, extravagant devotion to him must come first. So long as we live in this present world, the poor will always be with us. There will always be needs around us, needs of all different kinds. And who is going to be the most helpful to those who are poor in all sorts of ways? It's going to be those who are rich towards Jesus. It's going to be those men and women who commit to delight in Jesus, to linger in his presence, and pour out their praise to him for his love and his forgiveness, for his sacrificial generosity shown at the cross. 
those are the men and women who will be most ready to go and show sacrificial generosity to others. And what Jesus said in Matthew 26 was exactly in line with the message of Deuteronomy 15. And that's why after all the instruction about generosity to others, this chapter brings us back again to the presence of God, where his people bring their sacrifices of praise. Moses and Jesus were on the same page. They both knew the fuel for true generosity comes from lingering in the presence of our generous Lord. And so costly sacrifices of worship are not wasteful. They are a beautiful thing. Devotion to God through our Savior Jesus, that is our first priority. And so don't neglect those times of devotion. Make them a non-negotiable priority in your life. Not something you do if you can find the time. We can always find time for what's important to us. So prioritize times of devotion, both when you're alone and then these times of corporate devotion. As we gather together and as we together pay attention to God's word and respond to him with prayer and praise. These times together are not times to be passive. Don't ever think in terms of attending worship at church. Church is not a cinema. We come to church to participate. And we do that by intentionally focusing on God, by actively listening, expecting to hear from Him and ready to obey what we hear from Him. So I encourage you, when you come, make the choice not to play on your phone. Do God the honor of shutting down other things and leaning your heart and your mind toward Him, not to anything else. I know Jesus isn't physically here, so we can't pour perfume over Him. But the Bible says our praises are a fragrant offering to Him. And yes, we don't bring animals to give to Him, but taking his word seriously, being attentive to it, that is pleasing to him. And time in his presence will then send us out as different people. People who are ready to be generous to others because we are filled up with love for this God who is infinitely generous to us. Our generosity will wither when we neglect to worship God. It will flourish as we spend time enjoying His presence. So as we close, before we go outside, we're going to take a moment to be quiet, to consider what we've heard personally, and to make any commitments we need to make personally. And that might be for you a new commitment to take these times of worship more seriously, to prioritize them, and to actively join in rather than just letting it all pass you by. And maybe for you, it's time for a fresh commitment to a life of generosity, looking for needs among your brothers and sisters counting the cost of helping, and then persevering and giving constructive help. So let's take some time just quietly where we are. Let's make the response we need to make. And then after a few moments, we'll respond together as we go outside and sing in response. But let's just take this time before we go.
Our last two songs remind us of the generosity, the divine generosity that has been poured out on us, love incarnate, and then king forevermore. So if the, we'll let the musicians go ahead of us, and then we'll leave through these doors, and there are song sheets there. Uh, do pick one up as you're passing by. Yeah. 